0: Good morning. Good to see you and be seen. Um, I tell you what, let's just jump right in. Maybe we'll get through before 3 o'clock. Turn in your Bible. I'm going to give you a heads up here. Turn in your Bible to Haggai. Now, that's the third to the last book in the Old Testament. Okay? Page 805, if you have the right Bible. Um, I want to remind you of our premise that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And that's this. God has always desired... And always provided a place for man to meet him. Don't ever forget that. God has always desired a place to meet man. He has always provided a place to meet man. And the issue then becomes, will I go to the place where God is in order to meet him? Or will I worship him or try to meet him on my terms instead of his terms, which never works out well? And so we talked about uh, the children of Israel, and we've kind of taken a journey with them. And, and we have we've just hit the mountaintops. We've just skimmed Exodus, Deuteronomy, First and Second Chronicles. We've just skimmed those, and so I hope you'll spend some time going back and looking at them because there's a whole lot more there than what we've covered. And last week, we kind of left Israel. The picture was that Israel had come into the promised land, and God had promised them when they get into the promised land, I'm going to choose a place to dwell I'm going to pick a place to worship for you to come and worship me. That place was Jerusalem, and then he also, in the same context in Deuteronomy, says, "But the time's going to come where you're going to rebel against me, and I'm going to withdraw my presence from you because you've turned your back to me." And sure enough, that's what happened. They go into is they go into the promised land. They're there. They build the temple for. A couple of hundred years, they rejoice in that and celebrate that, but then other gods become appealing. Worshiping God's other ways instead of the way God designed for them to worship became appealing, and just like God had promised in Ezekiel that my glory will leave, and sure enough, it did. It left gradually, but it left eventually. It left completely. It lifted off of the Ark of the Covenant, went to the, went to the doorway, then went to the gate, then went to the mountain, and it was gone. Right after that, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and they took Israel captive into Babylon. And so for 70 years, now it's interesting, they're taken into captivity in Babylon and one prophet comes along and he says, thus says the Lord, don't get too comfortable, don't get too worried, after two years, God's going to break the yoke that Nebuchadnezzar has on Israel, and we're going to get out of here and go back to Jerusalem. It's great, except for Jeremiah, and you can see why they threw him in a pit. Jeremiah comes along and says, not so fast, and he confronts this prophet and says, you're not speaking the word of the Lord. As a matter of fact, God's going to break your yoke. And sure enough, he died soon after that. And Jeremiah came and says, you're going to be here 70 years, not two years, but 70 years. And as a matter of fact, while you're here, I don't want you grumbling, griping, complaining, whining, moaning, or resisting. What I want you to do is I want you to build houses and live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat from it. I want you to pick wives and husbands for yourself. And I want you to pick wives and husbands for your sons and daughters. And I want you to seek the welfare of the people that have you captive. Now, which would you rather have? Seventy years of that or two years And you're out of here. What a wonderful picture. How many of us have found ourselves in situations where we thought we were captured? We've been captured into this situation, whether it was a job or whether it was a relationship. And we're looking for God to say, just two years. And I think quite often the heart of God is, no, it's going to be a little longer than that. And while you're here, I want you to quit griping, I want you to quit complaining. I want you to quit criticizing your boss. I want you to get out of the gossip sessions that you have with the other employees when you're critical of your boss. As a matter of fact, I want you to make your boss successful. I want you to make the other person in this relationship successful. And so they're here. They're there for 70 years. The temple is destroyed. And after 70 years in captivity to Babylon, In remnants, not all at once, but in segments, people began to return to Jerusalem, all right? Seventy years was up. They've done their time, and they gradually begin to come back to Jerusalem. But now, God knows people, okay? And people are the same. And what happens is any heart that they had to repent of the rebellion that put them in captivity in the first place, was short-lived. And once again, they chose to rebel. And you see the cycle. Walk with God. Repent. Walk with God. Rebel. Correction. Repent. Walk with God. Does that sound familiar? Is that like anybody you know? I mean, God says something, Oh, yes, God, I'm going to obey you eh, for a week. Anything you say, I'll do. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, for a while. Oh, I just want to walk with you and praise you. Yeah, till it gets hard. So there's this cycle that takes place in people. They commit to the Lord. They want to walk with God. They surrender to him. Things get uncomfortable or things go like they don't want it to be, and they choose to rebel again. Then they repent. Then they go back. Once again, Israel found themselves Pursuing other gods, pursuing other means of worship. And like most of us, listen to this. Like most of us, when the presence of God is withdrawn, instead of seeking his face, we use that time to organize and invent practices and positions that substitute for God's presence. Yeah, that's worth repeating again. I'm going to refer to Israel. And like most people, when the presence of God was withdrawn, instead of seeking his face, they used their time to organize and invent practices and positions within their culture that substituted For God's presence. You see, it was in this period of time where they created the Sadducees and the Pharisees. How'd that work out? It was during this time that they created certain religious practices. God didn't didn't initiate them, but they incorporated them into their religious culture. Because it's so much easier to just do the religious stuff than it is to humble our heart and do what's necessary to find the Lord. And typically, we are taught how to adapt and live without God's presence instead of repenting and seeking his face. Just be satisfied. Do this stuff. Yeah, but God's not here. That's okay. Do this stuff. Instead of... Allowing God to search our heart and search our attitude and see what it is that keeps us from enjoying and experiencing his presence. And so it's important for 600 years that cycle was repeated. 600 years after the temple was destroyed till the time Jesus came, comes, 600 years there of surrender, commitment, Rebellion, repentance, grief, surrender, repentance, back and forth. But it's important to take note what God's heart was during this time. That's important. That's important for us to grasp that God's heart towards Israel in the middle of their roller coaster life is no different than God toward attitude towards us in our roller coaster life and it may not be what you think it was instead of taking the posture of a vindictive ogre he took the posture of a loving father longing for his creation to return to him here they are make a promise break it feel bad repent Make a promise, break it, fill it. In the middle of that cycle, God's attitude in his heart towards here was not one of vengeance, but it was one of a father's heart. And he sent numerous voices warning them. Three things. He sent numerous voices. Number one, warning them of the danger of pursuing their rebellion. Cautioning them. Saying, this is not going to work out. This is not going to be like you think it's going to be. This is not going to work out the way you're hoping. Cautioning them, warning them about their rebellion. Second of all, giving them a picture of a hopeful future that he had prepared for them if they'd obey. Reminding them of what he had provided, reminding him of what he wanted to do, reminding him that you're gonna, there's hope if you'll be obedient to me. And third of all, making numerous appeals from a father's heart to return to him. Catch those three things. Warning them, cautioning them of the danger of pursuing their rebellion, giving them a picture of a hopeful future that he had prepared for them if they would obey and making numerous appeals from a father's heart to return to him. Now, there are three outstanding prophets that were on the scene during this period of time. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three books of the Old Testament. Now, we were talking with Ben this morning, and we lose so much because the Bible is not written in chronological order. I mean, you know, I I don't know what these guys were thinking when they jacked all this stuff around. They figured, put the major prophets together, the minor prophets together. But the problem is you lose the context and the chronology of what really went on. And these three prophets were on the scene in this 600-year period delivering those three things to the children of Israel, warning them about the dangers of pursuing their own will, showing them that God had a wonderful future for them if they would obey and revealing to them the heart of a father. And so he sends these three guys, at least these three guys. And in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Stop doing your thing. Think about what you're doing. Consider the consequences of what you're doing. Consider the results of you rejecting God and His ways and embracing anything else. Consider that. Think about that. Stop doing your thing and come back to me when I have desired. Now look in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. Here's the action. Stop doing these things. I want to come to you. I want to dwell in your midst. I want to be there at a meeting place for you. Stop doing what you're doing. Return to me. Return to me that I may return to you. And in verse 4, he said, don't be like your forefathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, when I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. He says, don't be like your forefathers who heard the caution, who saw the promises that I had for them and experienced my heart reaching out to them. Now look in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst. Here's that hope for the future. Here's that hope for God returning again. And he said, I want to come back. I am coming back. Now, look, he says something here. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord. Not just Israel. All of a sudden now, he's expanded it. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Mark that. Many people, many nations will come and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst. You will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now look in chapter 8. Look in uh, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold I am going to save my people from the hand from the land of the east and from the land of the west and I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness look in verse 13 it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. I'm going to turn this thing from you from a curse to a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. Look in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There is that promise. There is that hope. I want to come and dwell in your midst. I want to live there. Return to me in order that I can return to you. Now, then he does something very interesting. He gives us a peek into what's coming. He tells us how the king is going to come. Look in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when you you think of a king and you think of a king coming triumphantly, I don't think a donkey is the first thing that comes to mind. You usually think of a white horse, of a stallion, of one of these huge Frisians that have all the long hair and the big hooves and they prance when they walk. He says, that's not how this king is coming. He's coming humble on a donkey, the foal of a colt. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. look in chapter 11. He gives us another hint. Verse 12, And I said to them, It is good in your sight. Give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Hint, hint. A peek ahead, you're going to look back, you're going to watch instances and look back and remember, this is how I said it was going to go down. Now look in verse 10 of chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the houses of Jerusalem, inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and will weep bitterly over him like a bitter weeping over a firstborn. God says there's hope. It's not going to be like you think. It's not going to look like you think. It's not going to be the way you want it to be. But it will be my presence dwelling with you. That's the hope I have for you. I've not rent you off. I've not discounted you forever. And he promises. He gives that vision of hope, that picture of a hopeful future that he's prepared for them if they'll be obedient. Now look in Malachi. Malachi is a 100 years after Babylon. Israel is a Malachi is 100 years after Israel has been in captivity with Babylon and the cycle continues. The same cycle is there. Malachi comes on the scene. It has gotten to the point. You see it, there there comes this place in your rebellion. And then you experience the consequences of your rebellion. And then rather than accept responsibility for your rebellion, you say, well, God, where were you? How come you didn't keep this from happening? How come you didn't stop this from happening to me? You must not really love me. If you really love me, you wouldn't let this stuff happen to me. When the truth of the matter is, what's happening to me are the consequences of the choices I made God didn't have anything to do with it. But the end result can be we begin to question God's love for us. Israel was there. They'd done all this stuff, and now they're wondering, how in the world can this stuff happen to me? Where were you, God? Look what what he said in verse 2 of Malachi 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? was not, and God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Here they were questioning God's care for them. When the Things that they were experienced had nothing to do with God's care for them. It had to do with the choices of rebellion that they had made, and they were suffering the consequences. And Malachi comes back and says, God still loves you. God didn't do this to you. God still loves you. Look what he says in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled blood upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifices, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? You have come and brought me... Nothing I wanted. You brought what you wanted. I want the pure. I want the spotless. I want that without blemish. And you have brought me the cripple, the blind, and the lame. And then you want grace and favor from me because you've done that? But now will you entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place. Incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations. But you are profaning it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring that offering. Should I receive that from your hand? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, and my name is fear among the nations. What's God saying here? He's saying, you're not bringing me what I asked. You're bringing me what you want. Oh, you get this, this, this bull and you say, he's the Lord's. we reserving him. But then you bring a lame one to the sacrifice. The whole point behind that is God is not obligated to accept anything we bring him that we think he ought to have. That's strong. That is really strong. Well, I worship in my way. Being interpreted means, listen to me, being interpreted means I worship me because I bring what I want. I bring what I think God ought to have. Instead of finding out what he wants and giving him what he wants, I bring him what I think he ought to have, and he is not content in having that. And that's what he was saying to Israel here. You are defiled by giving me what you want and not what I want. They would acknowledge their disobedience. Yeah, we rebelled against God. We don't like the consequences. We're going to change. But rather than going back to the Lord, they just went back to religious practices. Can you see the distinction? Rather than going to the Lord and find out what he wants and bringing him what is wrong, they just went back to the the, the outward practice of these religious activities. Yes, they brought a sacrifice. Yes, they brought an offering. Yes, they did all this stuff, but none of it came from the heart of God. They would acknowledge their disobedience, but just go back to religious exercises, but not turn to the Lord. And there's a distinction. Hosea 6 6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 says this What is the Lord required of you, O man? What is he required? What does the Lord want? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Before the Lord. An humble heart. What 2 Chronicles 7, 14? That verse we ripped through when we quoted. My people are called by my name shall what? Humble. Humble themselves. Humble them. Before you pray, humble yourself. Before you ask me to do anything, humble yourself. And rather than face the humility Rather than humble ourselves before the Lord, we just go back to doing religious stuff. And the church is so duped, we just buy that. Oh, that's great. He's singing in the choir. Yeah, he's giving testimonies anymore, and his life is a sham. God's not pleased with that. I don't want that. You would think they would remember David. Look in Psalms chapter 51. David said in Psalms 51, verse 15, "O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise." Rather than Israel humbling themselves before the Lord and returning to him, they just returned to the religious practices, went back to the sacrifices. God said, I'm not pleased with them. I want an humble heart. I want a broken heart. I want a contrite heart. I want a heart that's submitted to me. In Matthew chapter 23. We're getting way ahead here. But in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father during this time. When he says about Israel, chapter 23, he says, uh, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. This period of time, they stoned them. They killed them. They tortured them. They rejected them. And Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. The heart of the Father. I wanted to gather you to myself. I wanted to bring you in and, and love, you, love you and cover you with the shadow of my wings. I wanted to bless you but you ran, you resisted, you would not come to that. Now, in Malachi, go back there. Last chapter, last book, he sums it all up. He says, for behold, verse 1 of chapter 4, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, watch here, look at the phrase, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. He says the proud, those who never humble themselves, will not experience the joy of the Lord. Those who reject, who continue to just do the religious stuff and don't return to the Lord, nothing for you. But if you will humble your heart, seek my face, and seek my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise over you with healing in its wings. wonder who he's talking about. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now, here we go. Verse 5, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible for the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. There's the promise. I'm going to do something. Before I do it, I'm sending someone to prepare the way. Just like at Mount Sinai, and I prepared the people to come to meet me. Just like at the tabernacle when I prepared the people for my glory to be revealed. Just like at the temple whenever we prepared the priest before they went in to the Holy of Holies. I am preparing. I will send someone to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, let me explain something to you. Preparing the way of the Lord or preparing to meet the Lord does not mean that you do things to earn your way into the presence of God. Okay? Preparing yourself to meet the Lord does not mean that you do things to earn yourself the right to be in the presence of God. But the purpose of preparing preparing ourselves is to tune our heart to fellowship commune with the father okay two can't walk together unless what they be agreed two can't walk together unless they be agreed tuning my heart means that i bring my heart in agreement with the father Do I have desires? Yes. Do I have requests? Yes. Do I have visions? Yes. Do I have dreams? Yes. But all of that comes under the authority of Christ, and I bring it to him. And I tune my heart. It's much like tuning an instrument. Whenever you tune an instrument, you match your instrument to a certain frequency. Okay? Whenever we are preparing our heart, we are tuning our hearts to the frequency that God's own, to respond to his voice, to respond to his leading, to not resist him. And he said, I'm sending someone to prepare the people to receive me, to tune their heart. And look with in Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Bear in mind, 600 years, no glory, no ark, No dwelling place for God. Even after they built the second temple, God didn't inhabit it. He didn't live in it. 600 years he sends these guys for them to repent and turn back to the Father. Shares his love, reveals his heart for them. Then at the end of Malachi, he says, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. Now we go to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias for the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God while walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at an hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go for who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Sound familiar? All right. God's fixing to do something. 600 years, no presence, no glory, no ark, no revelation of God last word you get is, I'm going to send somebody after the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children and to prepare the way of the Lord. And an angel shows up to this priest who's ministering. Now think about it. He's ministering in the Holy of Holies. And this angel shows up and says, got you covered. You're going to have a child. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I look at verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, "How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. More diplomacy has never been verbalized. I am old. She's just advanced in years. <clears throat> the angel answered and said to him, "I am Gabriel." We stand in the presence of God, and I have been spent sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which fu- fu- was fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and they remained and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Okay? Now look in verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. It happened on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, for he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to call, him Call, And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Now look in verse 67. And his first father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and accomplished Redemption for his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the end of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. God's getting ready to do something. God always prepares his people before he shows up. All right? to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, which, which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way <clears throat> of praise. Now listen, John the Baptist comes on the scene. His sole purpose in being there, he said, I'm not the light. I'm here to testify of the light. I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. Now listen, had Israel's leaders been tuned to the Spirit, they would have known that God was about to do something. Because God always prepares his people before he shows up. But they were so caught up in their religious practices. They were so caught up in their traditions of men. They were so caught up in their prestige that they completely missed God was doing something. And he sent John the Baptist in preparation for his revealing himself. And they completely missed it. He was always prepares his people before showing up. <clears throat> now, Galatians 4.4 4 uses this phrase, and when the fullness of time had come, I don't know what the fullness of time was. I don't know what it was that after 600 years of God's absent being pres- presence being absent, he chose this time to manifest and reveal himself. But here's what happened. Look in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said the same thing Zacharias says. How can this be? Zacharias got struck dumb. Mary got an explanation. I don't know. How can this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth was also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord they had done to me according to the word of God. God's preparing something. He's already prepared the one to go away, to go before. He's already brought the one before, to go before to prepare the way of the Lord. Now it comes to Mary. And he has this visitation. He says, you're going to have a child and the spirit of God. Just like Zachariah said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He picked two, one old lady and one young lady to usher in the glory of God that had been missing for 600 years. Now he visited Mary, and he says, Mary, you're going to call him, he'll be called the son of God. Now let's see how it went with Joseph, Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Why do you think he called him Joseph, son of David? Well, he was of the lineage of David. Why was that important? Remember the promise? God told David, you will have an heir on the throne for eternity. It wasn't just a random choice. It wasn't the casting of lots. It had to be of the house of David. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet." Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Six hundred years. The glory is gone. The ark is gone. The meeting place is gone. And God prepares someone to come before. And then he comes to Mary. And reveals she's going to have the son of God. Then he comes to Joseph and says, you're going to have one. And he, listen to this, he is going to be God with us. Awesome. Awesome. Hadn't been here. Here's God's going to be with us here in your son. Now, one other deal. Look in Luke 2. All right. I mean, you see how all this stuff fits? okay? It it's all goes together. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now watch this. In the same region, There were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before him, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord that had come down on Mount Sinai the glory of the Lord that had filled the tabernacle the glory of the Lord that had filled the temple the glory of the Lord that had been absent for 600 years now shows up to a bunch of shepherds and says to them God is with you he's here he's here is no more void. There's no more absent. There's no more space. He is here. And the glory of the Lord confirmed it, and they were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for who? All the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Why? God's here. God's back. He's back. He's shown up again. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among all men with whom he is pleased. The angels had gone away from heaven. The shepherd began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see the thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. God is with us. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, Emmanuel. God is here. God is here. Where do you meet God now? Here? Where does God dwell? Here. God is here. Now, just by way of notice, God said he was coming to Jerusalem. All right? Look in chapter 21, of verse 2. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of the purification, according to the law of Moses, was completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem. God's back in Jerusalem in the form of a baby. God is back in Jerusalem in the form of a baby to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. God said he would come back to Jerusalem. And it is significant that he comes back to Jerusalem for this ceremony. He said he would return to Jerusalem, just not the way they thought. And many, especially the religious folks, missed it. Missed it completely. What we're seeing is a peek into the mystery of God that Paul talked about. What we see is the beginnings of the revelation, the clear revelation, all kinds of prophecies before alluding to it, all kinds of types, all kinds of shadows, but now the substance is here. The reality is here. And we're seeing a peek into the mystery of God. The mystery of God was revealed. The meeting place of God has arrived. Isn't that cool? The meeting place of God has arrived. The temple of God is here. It was never about a building. It was never about a structure. It was always about a person and everything before this was a type and a shadow, this was the reality of everything God had in mind in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, First Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, all of those, the realities here. God is here. This is where you meet God, in a person, not in a building. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Man, I'm going to preach that again. Let's, let's go back. Okay? This is, this is where we've been going. Well, let me see this. This is the front porch of where we've been going. All right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look through the Gospels. And I want you to find confirmations, illustrations, examples of the meeting place of God being in a man on the earth. Okay? I can't say that again. Except look for places that reveal the meeting place of God God's glory is revealed through this temple on the earth. All right, any questions? Huh? Well, just look in the Gospels right now. That's where most of it's at. Yeah, there's some others in the in in, in uh, the epistles, if you want to refer to those. But illustrations. All right, any questions? Any comments? <laughs> Probably my mama. Okay, this might be a random question, but when uh, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem after the eight days, was that a common thing to do? Was, yes. it was yes. a common thing. It was a thing to do for the firstborn. Yep. Let's see why? actually, it had to happen to fulfill the law. Jesus so, didn't come to abolish the law. He mm-hmm. came to fulfill the law. So he realized what they had done, and he walked that out. Did it again when he was 12 years old. When he's 12 years old, he walks in there, and think about it. Here's the word quoting the word. Mm-hmm. Here's the living word quoting mm-hmm. the, ri- the written word. Mm-hmm. And he, he could as well have said, that's me. Mm-hmm. I'm the word. Mm-hmm. So he was r- fulfilling everything that was required in the law. And that was one of the things. Okay? Okay? Anyone else?